Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you feel like getting in on the fun, then why don't you pop over to onenightinproduct.com right now, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on the podcast app of your choice and make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we swap the dreary drudge of London life for the sun-kissed beaches of Cancun, Mexico. We talk about what it's like being one of the only product companies in your town and what that means for your local meetups. Then we go deep on building your product strategy with some practical tips for building a vision and strategy, bringing it to life on your roadmap and making sure you can really nail it with OKRs. We'll also talk about some of the efforts to support the Latin American product community by building up a library of content in local language for non-English speakers. For all this and much more, vamanos to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Nacho Bassino. Nacho's a product leader, writer, speaker, teacher, podcaster, and now author. Nacho's based in sunny Cancun, Mexico. I can think of worse places to ride out a pandemic, and I can assure you he's not just sitting there in his swimming trunks. Nacho's CPO at Best Day Travel Group and former cable TV salesman who got bored of doing his Jim Carrey impression is now going door-to-door selling copies of his new book, Product Direction, How to Build Successful Products at Scale with Strategy, Roadmaps, and OKRs. Hi, Nacho. How are you? Hi, Jason. Really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, no problem. I hope it's as fun for you as it is for me. So uh, first things first, the book has been out for a short while now. How has the reception been? Well, I have a really great feedback so far. So that's that's great. A lot of people kind of resonated with this being a hard problem. So that's great being able to help in that hard problem. So I guess that I'm, I'm happy with the result. That's in English at the moment. Are you planning to release a Spanish version as well? or? Yes, yes, that's on, on the roadmap. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to be this year because actually the sad news is that it takes a long, a long time. But yeah, definitely on the roadmap. And you can do the Spanish audiobook as well. That's always a good treat as well, so I've heard. <laughs> not sure if my voice is that uh, nice. <laughs> and uh, what made you decide that this was the time to write that book? I mean, was it kind of lockdown fever you'd been sitting at home for a while and you you had nothing to do or was this something like an idea that you'd had brewing in your head for for quite some time it's a combination of things uh i i've been as you said i've been kind of trying to teach and write for a long time uh that's a lot of medium posts so i guess that was a logical next step and actually i started with some strategy posts in medium that has a lot of a lot of reads and, and reviews and comments so it was a positive sign and then the other part was when I trying to uh, explain this to my teams, I found out that I haven't the, would say the material so distilled and so clear in my head. So it was a good thought process at the same time. Yeah, I do find even with the limited number of medium articles that I've written that it's actually quite handy to be able to spend the time almost defending your own ideas to yourself in written form. So you spend some time, obviously you write down an idea you look at it, you're like, oh, God, that's terrible. And you, you try again, and then you try and hone it. And it seems to be a really positive process, for, certainly for me, and it sounds like for you as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I would say that when you teach something is when you really learn it. But when you have to write a book about it, you really, really learn it. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did it take to write the book? Uh, it's hard to say because I started very soon, so probably two years ago, something like that. Then in some point by third quarter, I 
finished the manuscript, I mean, last year. And then the editing process took like another six months. <laughs> Did you get lots of back and forth on that one? Uh, was it like a, an external editor, I guess, working on that with you? Yeah, I actually had uh, three editors. Uh, so <laughs> there was, lot, I mean, I'm, I'm not a native speaker. Uh, so I, that would, that would, I really needed help. But also I, I got a lot of beta readers, probably around 15 or 20, that gave great comments. So there was a long process of uh, kind of changing the manuscript, not only grammatically, but also in the contents. And did you find it, in general, an easy process to write that book? I mean, obviously, you say you spent a couple of years, maybe end-to-end, but was it kind of like you're just sitting there with ideas that you already had and finding the best way to actually formalize them and and not verbalize them, I guess, because it's a book, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or was it something that you had to do quite a lot of research for as well? How much of a journey was that for you? I think it was a combination of both. So I had this process in my head, so to speak. So I had, and I even have a lot of practice on that. So I guess on that side, I had what I wanted to write on my head. But then when, as I said, when you need to kind of make that clear on pages, it's difficult. And also when going further down into details or tools, I did a lot of research. Oh, excellent. Well, hopefully everyone will give it a good read and, and start to dig into it a bit. But speaking of journeys, you're also CPO for a travel company mm -hmm. based in a tourism hotspot in Mexico. So that seems like a pretty sweet deal in the best of times. I mean, maybe not so much at the moment, but in general, that seems like a pretty good gig. How did you get into that? Well, actually, I've been in travel for the last six or yeah, seven years. So I, basically, this company was um, transitioning from a traditionally managed IT organization with a PMO and such. And they were transitioning to a product-led organization. This is some strategic changes they wanted to make. So they were looking for someone who was an experienced product leader in the travel space and in Latin America. So there are not that many options. So I guess I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and what does the team look like there? Is it quite a big team that you've got with you or is it still... Are you still building it as, as part of that journey that you were mentioning from being a, a more project-led organization? Well, as, as many travel companies, we were hit hard by COVID. So there were some uh, adjustments there. But yeah, that, that, at the time, we, we had uh, around 20 squads working in different four different business units that the company has. So it's a decent-sized team, I would say, and a very interesting and, and complex um, industry and space. Yeah, so I was going to ask, actually, what sort of stuff are you doing then for Best Day Travel Group? Like, What type of products are you working on? What, what are you building specifically? Yeah, the company has four different business units. So there is a B2C, like we can say Expedia from Mexico. <laughs> so it's a, a traditional OTA. Uh, we have B2B product for travel agencies. We have a white label unit, like for retailers who want to have a, a booking engine for travel. Uh, finally, we have what's called a DMC, Destination Management Company, which is uh, when you receive passengers at the airport of, a, for instance, in this case, a Caribbean destination like Cancun, which is a very busy airport. You transport them to the hotels and the hotels, you offer them services and activities. Okay. And you're CPO though. So you cover all of those areas yourself, do you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we actually, we kind of mirror the product structure, mirrors the uh, say, uh, commercial organization. So we have heads of products for each of these lines and one head of product, which is transversal to 
all the things are like payments or connection with suppliers that work for our business units. But is that still at its heart very collaborative across those lines or are they very distinct? Like, for example, the Expedia for Mexico on the one side, and then you've got, for example, the booking cars bit at the other side or, or something like that. Like, are they fairly distinct or do you have lots of crossover between those teams? And, and how do you manage then? I guess where I'm going with this is how do you manage the interdependencies between those teams? That's a really, really good question. <laughs> so first thing first, probably the one of the, you, you asked about the challenge in, in, in this day. And one of the things we did at the beginning was kind of setting up this structure and a coherent strategy. Because even when the business units serve different businesses and different users, there is a lot of uh, potential synergies. So for instance, the, the most logical one is when you are selling in the Expedia for Mexico, investday.com, you are selling passengers going to Cancun. You can leverage the destination management company to transport those passengers and, and give them a better service. Yeah, like an end-to-end thing, right? Exactly, exactly. So that's uh, even it's an, an I would say a, a strength, a value we we can add on top of other competitors. So going to more to the specific product development phases, what we have is um, so we, we have all this strategy roadmap and OKR process. But then when we are moving to implementation, we have two things. One is, uh, we call it the portfolio Kanban. So we use Kanban as a methodology. So we, what we used to have in, in the wall, a big wall, uh, full of all initiatives for teams. At these are kind of a high level view of the initiative, not, not a, a feature or user story level, but more an initiative level. So we have a big board with all the initiatives that we're doing. Usually we recycle it each quarter. So it's, and the type of uh, development that will take a month for a team, more or less. So we are seeing this moving month to month, but we actually have the, the conversations bi-weekly. And in those initiatives, we see the dependencies. So we say, okay, this team is either in our initiative, more, more than one team is working, or this initiative has dependency with this other. For instance, uh, that's a, a good example. When, when you're trying to add a new supplier, let's say a new hotel chain, you have to make the connection from the supply teams and then all business units need to put that on their sites, so to speak, or on the platforms. So yeah, there is a combination. So we, we tend, we try through the structure to make teams as independent as possible, but for sure we have, uh, of course, uh, combined dependencies. So traditionally, a company moving from not being a product-led company into being more product-focused and from being presumably more project and top-down oriented to being more empowered and split across product teams, to achieve something like what you just said, they would do something like implement safe <laughs> or something like that. Now, it sounds like you haven't done that, which is good. <laughs> but was there any or were there any discussions around that sort of thing, having some kind of scaled agile process and trying to force that through because it made more sense given the history of the company? Or was it all in for Agile from the beginning? So to be honest, uh, the first thing I got in my favor was that the Agile discussion has been in the company for two years. So even when there is a project-led organization, they were trying to make those projects in an Agile way. So some of it was already in place. But yes, we, we had discussions about how we scale it. And when, that's probably what I showing. The most important thing for me was reducing dependencies. And to give you a rough idea, we had, of all initiatives we had when I joined, probably over 40% of them had dependencies. So we tried to keep an eye on that number and lower it. And the, the other good news is that 
probably 80% of the initiatives we couldn't complete on the, on the quarter were the ones with dependencies. So we, we really look into that problem and, and have uh, <laughs> interesting discussions on how to improve. Now, Cancun doesn't always come to mind when you think of big product companies. How is the general product scene down there? Is it just you or are there a bunch of other companies down there making waves in different ways? No, no, it's, uh, it's uh, probably a lonely place for, for product communities. <laughs> I'm uh, actually running Product Tank Cancun, uh, and, and we have uh, an interesting community because we have people from other disciplines showing us. <laughs> anyway, to, to answer your question, we have a lot of people coming from other places, like me, because Cancun <laughs> is a nice place to live. So it's, I would say it's attractive, but yeah, you don't have many, many other product companies. And also, it feels like if you were going to go out and do user research for your company then do you get to go down to the beach and uh interview people in their bikinis and swimming trunks or is it do you have to be a bit more you know, back at the office in in your shirt sort of it's a, it's a good question because if you are trying to i mean if you want to have users closer to the decisions moment so for instance for us we have a big user base on mexico city traveling to cancun so what we do is the other way around we travel to mexico city and do some interviews there. And well, we, we used to travel. Now it's all everything online, but yeah, yeah that's, sure. that's how we do it. But on the other hand, for, for instance, for the destination management company that is for passengers actually in Cancun, we leverage the transportation. The transportation from the airport to the hotel is probably an hour and a half. Oh, there you go. And people is open to, to speak at that moment that they don't have anything to do. I was going to say, yeah, you've got like a captive focus group right there, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That is a fantastic idea. Okay, so let's go to the book. Obviously, we don't want to ruin the book by going into too much detail, but I wanted to touch on some of the, the main themes. So in the book, you boil everything down to three key areas. You've got strategy, you've got roadmaps, and you've got OKRs. So from the top, what are some of the key steps for you to consider when building a strong product strategy? Well, I always say that the book is heavily structured. So actually for the strategy, we have some chapters that kind of walk through. So through the process or all the steps I, I will consider for the English strategy. So we start with diagnosis. For diagnosis, there is no actual tool or recipe, but the most important thing I always, or I mentioned in the book is that you need to cover many different areas. So maybe some teams focus just on their product metrics, or maybe they are only focused on, on the market. You actually need to combine the market, the, your competitors, the user from user research, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the, the initial step. And then the second part is coming up with insights. And for insights, again, this is a kind of scary word many times because it's not that like you just <laughs> sit down and come up with insights out of blue. So I, I usually say that you probably have many insights during the product development process for the last six months. So it's more kind of getting those and combining those and thinking about those. But in a, in a sense, I also have some kind of uh, tools that I, we can leverage. For instance, you have the framework from the book Blue Ocean Strategy, in which they dissect the value proposition in different attributes, and they say, okay, which one you can eliminate, reduce, create, or increase. So you, you have those tools uh, available to kind of come up with insights or, or thinking outside the box um, and help you your, in your thought process. Then you switch shears and you start selecting. So you start reducing. You come up with the many insights, but you need to select the most important ones. And that's, it's not like the prioritization tools that we use and think about the ROI of each opportunity. 
is more around which are the ones that will strengthen our core value proposition. So I call it centering the core. That's my, my favorite tool, I would say. But it's, it's around everything is around thinking how you can make your value proposition stronger. And the other one is about selecting things for longer period of time. So for instance, Google has this framework 70-20-10, in which they allocate 70% of the resources to the core business and increases the core business, but also 20% to growth and 10% to bets. So can kind of thinking, you can use any framework that you prefer, but thinking about that long term is important. And then you wrap up that with goals and, and synthesis, which goals are very, I mean, it's kind of translating that to numbers. And then finally, it's uh, finding a, a good way to communicate it. I should say that you should come up with a one page of your strategy that is easier to, to share with teams and stakeholders. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Do you feel that at your place that you have that 70, 20, 10 going or are your numbers very different or are they top secret? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, especially during COVID, we switch more like 90, 10 <laughs> or 90. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I'm not sure the right number, but yeah, it's, uh, I think that it's hard to find that balance, uh, at least in my experience. Yeah, I guess one of the most important things is to consistently have an eye on it and adjust it as you see fit, depending on how the business is doing, right? So it doesn't have to be like a hard 70 all the time, for example. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the on the top management of the company even or how the company is structured. Because when you are on, on when commercial teams or marketing teams have a lot of pressure to deliver short-term results, you will have that stronger pressure to allocate more more resources there. But I would say, and actually this is something that I say in the book, that product teams, I think we have a stronger responsibility to make sure we are building for that future of the company. So I would say this for, for product leaders who are not doing this, uh, I will say that you need to advocate with the CEO or whoever is your boss that you need to allocate this time for the future. Yeah, so that's interesting though, because you see time and time again, and I've certainly seen in the past where you have this situation very much as you just described, where you've basically got, relatively short-term thinking because there's deals to be won or there's clients to be landed. And in many ways, depending on the background of the leaders of the company, that could even feel like business as usual. Like, like that's how business is done. Now, obviously, we sit there thinking, well, business isn't done like that. You know, As you say, we need to think of the long term. We need to build a sustainable, future-focused product strategy. But how do you or how would you recommend pushing against some of that thinking because the way I've always seen it is if there is actually a business priority to actually just make money somehow because of runways and pipelines and all that stuff, it sometimes it is fair to say that if you don't get the money sooner, then you're not going to have the time to do the long-term thinking because the company is going to collapse. But at the same time, you can't just keep doing that. So, So how would you push against that? And how would you try to make sure that even if it was like that, that you could push it towards not being like that okay yeah well i think it's uh it's a hard problem it's not 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 easy and if you are struggling to survive i think it's a it's a very hard <laughs> argument to make so as you said i mean that you need to be reasonable and at some stage uh, but i, I can say in two in two different uh well, two different examples the first one for instance will be the um, temporary rentals like airbnb that they grew they grew they grew and travel companies can could capture that space at any time and they have a stronger user base and would be easier kind of to crush the opportunity. But they just took too long to explore that new space and they essentially let the, the beast grow, <laughs> so to speak. So I mean it happens to us to, to us as well. 
So that's one example of how you can frame not thinking about the future, what can happen. And I think that showing that those examples of the past, you, you, you can use Kodak, but maybe that's an <laughs> overused example. But um, on the other hand, for instance, what, what it did, we had uh, in, at the state, when at some point, we have very weak uh, mobile experience and it was hard in sales. But we, in order to improve it, we need to do kind of a mid-term slash long-term plan. And in order to combine the business need of the short-term results with that, we split the teams. It's not something I really love because I think that teams should be in charge of product and they, they gain more ownership by seeing both, both faces. But in this case, we didn't say a, a, a other way around. So we split one team that will be focused with the marketing team in short-term things that we can increase uh, conversion or increase uh, fast revenues, and then a, a mid-term path to, to kind of uh, leverage the experience. That makes sense. If we go on to roadmaps then, obviously there's a variety of different opinions about what the best format for a roadmap is and whole spectrum from super detailed, effectively waterfall Gantt charts all the way through to now, next, later, buckets and everything in between. Do you have a preferred format yourself or is it very flexible depending on what the situation demands? I would say I have more than like principles, that's why I call it in the book, than a really specific format in mind. So I, I, was, I, you know, I would say that I'm not dogmatic about the specifics. I'm more in, interested in the why we are doing things. So, um, but to, to, to give you a better answer to the question, I, for instance, I like to think about quarters because I think they match the, the later OKR process preferably. So they, they match together. And also not being solution oriented, but being more outcome oriented or problems we want to solve. So I think those two are the biggest ones for me. And once you have that set in place, you can move around. And the other one I would say that it's why I try to push forward. It's not a, really a, a need, but I think it's good is when you align your strategic drivers that you create in your strategy to your roadmap. That's much clearer for, I mean, to communicate with stakeholders. Yeah. But on those stakeholders and I'm. Um specifically thinking of maybe more senior stakeholders or people that come from project management backgrounds or like you say places that have pmos as well like there are going to be some people that just expect that gantt chart and there are going to be some people that expect certainty and there are going to be some people that expect really solid dates on roadmaps and commitments there may even be people that start selling stuff you haven't made yet writing it into contracts and then needing you to backfill that onto the roadmap so those are all obviously really horrible situations to be in, but how can a product leader push back against that and push back against that kind of thinking so that they can do what you just said and not keep getting dragged back into the old bad world of Gantt charts and, and dates? I think that at some point, uh, two, two things uh, that are important. The first one is to embrace uncertainty, but what I mean to that is, uh, is trying to show others their sanity you have. And for instance, for me, as you said, I shouldn't a company used to Gantt charts. So the first thing I show is how often those Gantt charts were wrong. It was kind of <laughs> over 80% of the time they missed. Uh, even more, I wouldn't dare to say more, but I think it's kind of almost 100%. So I guess that by explaining to them how that uncertainty will be basically lying to them and that will make us all make bad decisions, that's the, the, the first argument. The, and related to that is trying to 
understand what they need as a certainty. So for instance, I would say, okay, we won't commit on this feature by this date, but we commit to move this lever, move this metric by the end of this semester. So if we make those agreements, the conversation becomes easier. And of course, you need to have in place other mechanisms to keep them updated. Because if you join, just join once a quarter and say, hey, this is my roadmap, I won't tell you what I'm going to do, that's bad. But <laughs> for instance, we, we have monthly meetings with all stakeholders. We, we have uh, the, the heads of products had weekly meetings with their heads of business units. So we, we have all those communications that uh, reduce then suddenly presented in a roadmap. So I think that's that's very important. If you use the roadmap for everything, for all communications, that definitely are going to need that. And the second thing I want to say is probably uh, I, um, the, the, the ones that expressing better is uh, Mark Araham, that you need to embrace tension and, and the part of managing products, managing tension. So you will get that. Yeah, no, that that is true. I think one thing I was discussing actually earlier today with, with another product person was when you're forced to do that kind of more specific very gantt type roadmap you're really in a position where you're either going to have to just accept that that roadmap isn't actually going to be hit like you say like the 80 percent of time or you're going to have to massively under promise right you're going to basically have to inflate your timeline so much to cater for the uncertainty that you're actually going to be doing less than you could have been doing if you'd have been a bit more flexible so yeah it's difficult because like you say you can't just walk up to someone and not show them anything because they're not going to understand so having some kind of data in your back pocket feels very useful in that situation yeah and going back to our uh, more agile oriented discussion not necessarily product and strategy one example i like is from user historic mapping the book from chef adam yep he explains one project in which they had a deadline because there was a sport event and what they did was kind of reducing the scope and managing the scope. And I think that's the, the best way. I mean, yeah. there are times in which you as a product leader need to understand that there is a deadline and, and for sure. And, and there are, I mean, for travel, we have the kind of the, the big sales seasons, things like that. So you have deadlines, yeah, yeah. but you need to manage the scope. And that's not so much on the strategy side. That's more on the, I think, agile management side. And the final section is OKRs. Now, obviously, Lots of people are talking about OKRs these days, but I think it's also fair to say that not everyone's necessarily using them the way that they were intended to be used. And that in many cases, they're effectively just used as a task list or like a Trello board of just these are the three things I want to do this quarter and have some very specific outputs listed as those OKRs. So how do you, or you must have had those discussions yourself with people in the past when you're trying to set OKRs or maybe trying to sell in some of the OKRs to the rest of the management of the business. How do you how do you try and get OKRs to be used properly within the organization or how do you advise others to do that and not just make it just a list of tasks? Definitely, that's the, the first problem. In every company I started with OKRs, that's the, we, we hit the same problem, kind of having these OKRs that were binary or outputs focus instead of outcome, outcome focus. So... What I mostly do, uh, it's kind of a constant process, is uh, doing a lot of reviews when creating them. So we, you have kind of the, you can have the top-down review in which the head of product is in charge of making sure the product managers are coming up with outcome-oriented, uh, or, or the product team even, are coming up with product-oriented OPRs. And on the other hand, we implemented peer reviews. So we kind of shuffle the, the, <laughs> the OPRs from one team to another. And they had to give feedback and say, okay, and 
that peer pressure actually they did, did uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, great things well, there you go so uh building public as as very popular these days as well <laughs> exactly okay so obviously we think people should go and buy that book and hopefully they will on amazon directly after this call but on from that you also run your own podcast which would normally be very offensive to me but this is of course a very different podcast uh, conversaciones de producto fully spanish language speaking to product people across latin america now obviously most of the podcasts, most of the big podcasts at least are all english language and this one too how important do you feel it is to have local language representation in the product community well, I'm, I'm actually, uh, besides writing the book in English, which I think it's uh, a bit hypocrite from my side, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I've been trying to push for, for a long time and, and really trying to invest, I would say, in the in the product Latin community. We all say that uh, the, in, in average, the Latin community is a few years behind the US or Europe in terms of, um, say, uh, expertise or, or seniority. But we, we also have great product leaders. So, I mean... If, aside from the average, you can you have people who is very very well educated and very does a great job as a product leader. So we are trying to expose more of the, most of that. I think uh, going back to your question, actually, having that content is very important. For instance, in many countries in Latin America, English is not as well spoken as maybe in Europe. So having that those sensations, especially for people entering the space, is very important. And I'm pretty sure that. Along your journey, you will need to learn English <laughs> by force. <laughs> but I think that it's easier. And also, if you want to have kind of this networking things, or if you want to, want to do training and then especially coaching, it's very important to, to be able to have a conversation in your language. So I think, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pushing to keep, uh, I would say, uh, increasing the bar, uh, yeah, mo- moving the, the bar higher. Yeah, I guess it's also about getting the the Spanish speaking leaders that maybe have moved out to Silicon Valley or elsewhere to come and pay back as well. Because I guess the problem is, if you've got a fairly small pool, as you describe, and most of the product people in that neck of the woods are maybe less experienced. And well, I mean, I guess some of those will speak English and some of them won't, but maybe getting some of the people that have moved abroad and, and made their careers abroad and getting them to come back and do it would also be really helpful. There are two ways. I mean, there are the ones who move to other countries, but there are also the ones who are working on those companies who are above average. So, for instance, we have Mercado Libre, Despegar, Pedioja. So you have some companies which product craft is uh, at, a, at the very top, comparable to Europe or, or U.S., yeah. So bringing those voices, uh, I think it's a problem, a problem of having a community. It's a, we don't have a community and we are trying to build that. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And uh, long may it continue. And um, imagine after all this lockdown is over and you're allowed to go back out properly again, you pop down to the beach to do one of those interviews with the people in the bikinis and the swimming trunks and you spot a... Uh, I don't know barbecue on the beach and someone's cooking up some some grilled meat or something like that and you you know you go over you strike up a friendship with someone there and they ask you what you do and you say oh, I'm a I'm a CPO and I'm all, they're like what's the CPO you're like well I manage a team of product managers that do product management for a travel company and they're like what's a product manager what would you say <laughs> I run away <laughs> don't run away <laughs> yeah that is definitely just like jump into the sea but. If you had no escape routes, what would you say to that person? 
So the first thing I would say is that what we try to do is to improve users' life through building what they need uh, while creating a sustainable business. That's a mouthful, <laughs> but <laughs> that's actually why I think it's... Uh, this is why you need editors. That's the problem, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've been improving users' life through products and while making a sustainable business. That's why I believe we do. While collaborating with a lot of people in the organization, developers, UX, and business people, and that scientists, and who knows, to make that happen. Yeah, so that will be for a <laughs> outside person. That will probably be my answer. Uh, it's a it's a good answer, and hopefully one that will satisfy them. And do you have a next book on the horizon, or are you going to be throwing all your efforts into the Spanish translation, or are you going to just take a break and do your day job for a bit? <laughs> yeah, I don't have a new book in the horizon. I have some topics that I'm really interested in, but as I promised, I did it with this one. I will start uh, posting more Medium articles uh, and then see how that goes and see if there is a, an interesting audience and, 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 or interested at all in, in, in that, on those fields. Product culture, for instance, is a good one. That I, I think there are not so many books out there. So yeah, there are a few topics in my head. So where can people catch up with you if they want to speak to you after this about any anything regarding the book or anything about product or product culture, like you say, or just any other topics they feel like reaching out about? Yeah, I guess that LinkedIn, also on Medium, I, I really am active there, and, and you can search for Natural Signal on Medium. And I have my now my author page in Amazon. So if anyone wants to give feedback about the book, you can leave a review there. You've arrived. <laughs> Finally. I'll make sure those are all linked into the show notes and hopefully you'll get maybe some Spanish-speaking Latin Americans to come across and drink from the fountain of wisdom. <laughs> Actually, I'm really interested in, in meeting other folks from Europe and, and whatnot. So as I said, I'm really happy to share experiences with the community, the product community in general. So really happy to connect with everyone. That sounds like a fair offer. Excellent. Well, that's been a really interesting chat. So obviously really appreciate the time. I hope everything goes well as you navigate your way through the back end of lockdown and uh, you can be back on the beach soon. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. But as for now, again, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode interesting and inspiring. We've got a lot more great episodes on the website. So again, please pop over to onenightinproduct.com, have a look around, find some other interesting conversations, sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on the podcast app of your choice, share with your friends, and you and they will never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thank you and good night. <laughs>